0: And Lewis made the point. Israel was running on empty. The the whole sacrificial system and the way that they were trying to please God wasn't working. They had no joy. The joy was running out. Just like the party was about to come to an end and Jesus saved the party from its joyless, shameful finish. Jesus was coming to bring joy. But surely... As Jesus now approaches at Passover time, the biggest party of the year, the most important festival of the year for the Jews, and he's going up towards Jerusalem. Everything goes up towards Jerusalem because it's on this hill, and it's it's also symbolic of going up to the presence of God, to that mount where God dwells. And he goes with over a million worshippers. So this is a big festival. And so surely at this moment, Israel won't be found running out of joy, will it? Surely this is the moment where Jesus will will find that Israel is really worshipping. They're going for it. As they approach, the anticipation will be growing. Come in faith for the forgiveness of your sins. Remember what Jesus what God has done. Remember the lamb. Who the lambs that were smeared on the tops of those doorposts and the angel of death passed over, and then they were spared from the Egyptians and they passed through the Red Sea. Salvation to the Israelites remember that and remember that you can be forgiven of your sin through these sacrifices that were brought that were symbolic we know that and they were to come with the expectation that they would encounter God together they ascend the hill of the Lord surely here in this moment they are not running on empty this, is the, this has got to be the big joyful moment of the year. Now, to understand the significance of this temple that Jesus enters when he gets to Jerusalem, we've got to go back to Solomon when the first temple is built. King Solomon, son of David, he's on his knees and he's praying as the first temple is officially opened. 2 Chronicles 6 and 1 Kings 8 tell us all about it. We're going to just open up quickly in uh, uh, 2 Chronicles 6. So if you have a Bible, please do jump there. If you're new to this, it's about a third of the way through. What we see there is that all worshippers from every nation, were to gather. And the design of this first temple given by God is to fulfill the promise of Abraham by not only having this holy of holies for God alone in the center of the the temple, not only to have the priestly sanctuary just one step removed from that, but also to have this outer court where anyone can enter. Now whether you were King Solomon or whether you're just an ordinary person on the street, this was the place where you could come and you could worship. And it was to be for every tribe, a nation. That's why it was a fulfillment of what was promised to Abraham, that the nations would be blessed through him. Praise God. This temple was built. And Solomon declares, this is a place for you to dwell with your people forever. And this was to be a place where God and man were to dwell together. And Solomon prays, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continually and wholeheartedly uh, continue in your way. The temple place where God met with humanity was to be a place of solemn worship reverence awe and you picture that scene where all of israel gathers behind solomon as he literally kneels down and prays to god before the opening of the temple you can see that he's captured something in that moment of David's heart for the temple who was first instructed to or promised that it would be built he said this in psalm 84 and this is what we began with today how lovely is your dwelling place lord almighty my soul yearns even faints for the courts of the lord my heart and my flesh cry out for the living god and then he goes on verse 10 better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere i'd rather be a doorkeeper on the house of my god than dwell in the tents of the wicked for the lord god is a sun and shield the lord bestows favor and honor no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless lord almighty blessed is the one who trusts in you now contrast that scene at the opening of the first temple with this one jesus enters temple 2.5 Version 2.5, because in the Babylonian exile, the first temple is destroyed. And then the second temple, under uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, we see that this new temple is built. It's Temple 2.0. But then King Herod has come along, and he has expanded this. He's made it massive. And we now have Temple 2.5. Okay? And in comes... Jesus Now is you're going to be really impressed by this enormously grand building, 140,000 square meters, the Temple Mount. It's huge. The outside, it looks great. It looks magnificent. And actually, all these sacrifices that have been gathered from around the nation. The money changing that is going on is impressive. Got over a million worshippers coming in and you're able to organise it so that it works. That's amazing. There'd be an atmosphere, that's for sure. The crowd builds. Is Jesus going to be impressed? Is Jesus going to be in awe of the crowds? Is he going to be in awe of these great big buildings? Well, no. Instead of incense... He smells animal excrement. Instead of the sound of passionate praise, he hears the jangling of coins being changed. Instead of awe and holiness, transactional religion. They had lost the heart of worship, thinking they could please and appease God by adding to his law and just doing the right things. Instead, it had led to segregation among worshippers. The outer courts in Temple 2.5 is now in three sections, in order of purity. The court of Israel for the men, they got to be the closest. The court of women for the women, they were second closest. And then the outer court for Gentiles. For non-Jews. There's even signs that were put up at that border between the court of women and the outer court. And it said, No man of another nation is to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple, and whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. Wow. And you know, they've actually found these things stone tablets from the temple. Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote about them. God, who had promised to Abraham to bless the nations through him, Solomon establishes this temple which is given to him by God and and he's instructed clearly on how to build it, was to include all the nations. And here they are, segregating people. Worst of all, the place where the nations were to worship the Gentiles was turned into formal, transactional religion where people would come and they would change their money. That needed to happen somewhere, but not there. Because it had to be the right currency in order for them to be able to do it. And it was right that they were able to buy sacrifices. That was the command of the law. But they were doing it where they were supposed to be holiness, awe, reverence, true worship, joy. Jesus is angry because Israel has lost the heart of worship. In Mark, Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, 7. The temple is to be a house of prayer for the nations. And the same story. And instead of a house of prayer, his father's house had become a house of trade. Religious elites had organized things in such a way and reduced worship to transaction so that you go in, you pay your cash, you do your deed, and that's you sorted for another year. They thought God could be be contained in religious practice and process. Do this, do that, sorted, tick, religious, bit done. The outside worship actually looked okay. Looked quite good. But worship that begins on the outside never makes its way to the inside. they are like a bad holiday. You ever booked a holiday? And you look online, and you think, whoa, it looks like paradise. It looks amazing, I can't wait to be there. And you like, build up in your mind what it's gonna be like, that it's gonna be amazing, and that infinity pool, it'll just be me, Woo. And then you turn up. Nah. There's cockroaches under the beds. There's stained sheets. The food is like rubber. It's overcrowded. The pool isn't even open. It's under construction. It looked great on the outside when you purchased your holiday. You got there and it was an utter mess. Jesus is saying, Israel, religious elites, those who are leading the program here, You've got it all wrong. It's not about trying to please God with your religious practices. He wants you. He wants your heart. He always has. He always will. That's what he's about. To Jewish hearers listening in synagogues across the Roman Empire, there's echoes of a Babylonian exile ringing in their ears. God warns Israel and Judah through the prophets. You can do all the right things. Be obedient to the law. Keep all the festivals. Give all the sacrifices. But these things are useless if they're not done with wholehearted worship. Inside out worship. That's what Solomon says. Wholehearted. That's the way worship is to be in the temple. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because This whole system of worship at the temple is actually a post-exilic, post-Babylonian exile response, reaction. The judgment had come because they weren't careful to keep all the commandments of the Lord. But now Jesus is saying, you're missing the most important bit, the most important commandment. It's not the what you do, but the why you do it. Not your obedience, but your heart. We want to be obedient, but it needs to flow from our hearts. They weren't doing anything particularly wrong, except from worship, uh, uh, using that worship space and segregating. That was wrong. But they weren't, that was a follow-on from them getting it wrong in the heart. They were actually trying to please God in all the wrong ways because they were doing it from the outside in rather than the inside out. God is not interested in any of your religious activity unless he has you. He is jealous for you. God is not content with you acknowledging him on a Sunday or in daily quiet times as a tick box exercise. Religion is meaningless before God unless he has you and your heart. Psalm 105, 4 says we are to seek his presence continually. That's why I began by talking about what was happening in Asbury. I want to ask you again, do you really want it? Do you really want his presence? It changes everything. Jesus is really clear as we go through John. He wants all of you. Not some of you. Not a little part of you. Not a formula that you say out loud and then that's that. Sorted, I get to go to heaven. He wants you. He is jealous for you. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others say similar things in the years running up to the day that the Babylonians finally come and destroy Jerusalem. Here's how Amos says it in Amos 5 21 through 27. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. Hmm. Jesus is furious at all this. At one point, God instructs Jeremiah the prophet prior to those Babylonian years to take a pot and smash it into smithereens. And he's to do it before the people. And it's to be a prophetic act where he says, this is what will happen if you don't turn to God wholeheartedly. Jesus is doing something similar. This is a a judgment passage. Jesus, the fulfillment of the prophets, is coming and saying, this whole worship system, this whole way of doing it, where you're trying to do it yourself, will only lead to destruction. It will not lead to life and joy. But Jesus doesn't just pick up the needle's whip and start thrashing around. Do you notice that? He actually remains self-controlled. A fruit of the Spirit. You would expect that from Jesus, right? It takes time to make the thing out of cords, which commentators on this passage say is actually the gentlest whip you can get. He comes back in, and then he throws over the tables. Money flies everywhere. And he drives people and animals out. And says, this is my father's house. That's where the passion comes from. That's where the zeal comes from. From his heavenly father. And that's what we'll see again and again in John. Where does your authority come from to do all these things? To say these things, to make these claims about yourself? My heavenly father. Been sent by God. And the passion that he has for worship in the house of God reflects what David had. In fact, it's greater than what David had. It's that same heart of worship that we talk about with David, but in fuller measure. Jesus' anger here is righteous, and it's about restoring the heart of worship to Israel. Now, it could be easy to think, ah. These silly Israelites, honestly, every time, they just, God does something amazing and then they just wander off again. What are they doing? This is is like when he gives them manna in the desert and they start mourning and saying they'd rather be enslaved under Egypt. I mean, this is like the golden calf moment. Moses is only away for a short time and suddenly they're building this golden calf to worship. Here they go again. Silly Israelites. But I can be like these Israelites. Can you? Our defective and deceitful hearts keep being drawn back to a life that tries to contain God. It tries to put him in some kind of manageable box in our lives. And because God can't be managed or contained, our attempts to do so will only lead to our destruction. Have we been clear enough on that? Jesus is clear. And actually it will lead to a judgment that looks like the irreparable clay jar. And the temple, that first temple that was now just dust. So then, what does that mean for us? What does that mean? If our hearts are deceitful, if our hearts wander in the same way, how is it then that we can ascend the hill of the Lord? Psalm 24. Turn to it if you have a Bible. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. And then verse 3 says this, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Verse 4. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Huh. We need pure hearts. How are we going to get pure hearts? Well... It continues. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. So here's the answer. Verse 7. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is a King of glory. John has already told us, and now he leaves us this story here for us to discover him. Back in chapter 1, verse 14, it says this, "'The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. "'We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, "'who came from the Father, full of grace and truth.'" The Jews listening to this in synagogues around the Roman Empire would have immediately gone, dwell. Dwell. God dwells with us, the word becomes flesh, dwells among us, and we have seen his glory, this is an enormous claim, you are saying, the God in flesh has come to dwell with us, Emmanuel, God with us. And not only has he come to dwell with us, but he has come to reveal his glory. The king of glory has come in. Solomon's prayer at the building of that first temple was full of anticipation of God dwelling in the midst. But when you get to verse 18 of that prayer, in 2 Chronicles 6, he asks this. But will God really dwell on earth with humans? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Listen, if the temple that God instructed to build was never going to be able to contain him, you can't contain him. And there's really good news Because God never intended to be contained. And then through Jesus, who is God, the Word incarnate, the glory of God has come into the earth. And God has dwelt with us, among us. So verse 20, like the the religious elites ask. They ask, how can you raise up what is destroyed that took 46 years and, and three days? Impossible is the answer, right? For talking about this literal temple. And John says, he was talking about his body. Okay, if you've drifted off and you felt condemned because you're not on fire and you're not passionate right now, It's time to wake up. Here's the really good news for you. And the really good news for all of us, because none of us are carried by our passion. We're carried by the grace of God. We're carried by what Jesus has done for us. God could not be contained or managed. He was never going to dwell within the walls of a man-made temple. And instead, out of his compassion and his love, and his unfailing promises, he came to us knowing that he would be killed and destroyed. We should be killed and destroyed. Jesus instead came to be killed and destroyed. He is the new temple. And so Jesus isn't just coming to say, your worship's all wrong. He's coming to overthrow the whole system and say, you don't need your sacrifices anymore. You don't need the temple anymore because I am the new temple. I am the new sacrifice. I am the one who will be killed. And three days later, I will rise again from the dead. That is such good news. It means that our pathetic attempts at worship, our pathetic attempts at trying to please God, that get us nowhere, in the end, are not what matters. What matters? Jesus. He is your righteousness. He is your holiness. He is the one who has come to grant away for you to live in the presence of God for all your life into eternity. Our hearts will wander off. Jesus' heart was pure. The only one who could have been killed, destroyed on our behalf and received the sin that is ours And be punished instead of us has come and done exactly that. And then three days later, risen from the dead. So are you surrendered to his grace or are you still working to please him? Is your worship inside out because Jesus has come and given you a new heart? Have you trusted him for that? Religious approaches to worship take different forms. I think there's a few that might surprise us. Yes, there's the rules and regulations and people trying to stick to them to say, this is how I'll climb the hill of the Lord. I'm going to do all my quiet times. I'm going to be really rigorous with that. By the way, quiet times are great. Do them. But do them with the right heart, by grace, relying on him. Not as if by not having quiet time, suddenly God isn't pleased with you. He's pleased with you through Christ. He's the new temple. That's where you come. That's how you come to worship, through Jesus himself. And then, and I think this one is a big one right now. It's a different kind of religion. But it's where people come and they say, unless I'm feeling it, unless I'm conjuring up enough feeling, proving to God that my heart is truly in it, then I'm not worthy of being in his presence. Nonsense! The truth is Christ. He is the one who propels you into worship. He is the one who propels you into God's presence. What he has done, not what you feel, The truth that Jesus died for you and was raised up three days later is what allows you to enter into his courts. That is what caused the temple to be torn into. That is what caused this temple to be destroyed. But Jesus is a true temple. It's interesting, isn't it? Verse 22 the disciples believe. After the resurrection. So they'll look back and they go, Ah, wow, yeah, I see it now. I see it. He's the temple. Amazing. And we get that privilege as well. And we can look back through scripture and say, Ah, that's what was going on there. And they would have looked back at the Feast of Tabernacles as well, which happens later in John 7, and see that out of your hearts will flow... uh, rivers of living water Jesus says that's what he stands up and he says and John makes a little comment there as well he says well this is about the Holy Spirit that's yet to come and so here's the amazing thing not only is Jesus your temple but you are a temple of the Holy Spirit Christ lives in you by the power of the Holy Spirit so Jesus ascended on high, and then he pours out his spirit at Pentecost to birth the church. And so when you give your life to Jesus, you receive this same spirit. So the presence of God comes into you, and you become a temple of the Holy Spirit. And not only that, but we together are living stones Peter would write later, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Do you remember the priesthood? They were the ones who could get the closest. Well, you're a holy priesthood. You can get even closer than them. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through... Jesus Christ. He's the answer. He's how we get in to the presence of God and really know him. For in scripture it says, "See, I lay, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame." Do you trust in him? Do you trust in him? Well, if you do, today as we worship, we are a temple. So we encourage one another. We encourage each other into the presence of God. Living stones built up together. Jesus, our cornerstone. And we get to worship him. And we're going to do that in just a moment. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have received death to sin, life in Christ, and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And one day, Jesus will return. And we'll experience all of this in its perfection. And I can't wait. Places like Asbury, and awakenings like that, and God doing things in places like that, they are but just a little glimpse of the glory to come. Revelation 21.3, a loud voice from the throne said this, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. When Jesus returns, two of his first acts are going to be the purification of the church and a marriage supper of the Lamb. And so I think, actually, these stories last week's about this wedding feast that was coming to an end and Jesus saves the party... And we see, saw that by his blood, this, he is the wine, we can come and experience the cleansing. This, we can become righteous through Christ, by him exchanging his righteousness for our sin. And then this one that we have here of this new temple. And we can enter into presence of God through Jesus. They are peculiar I think because John right at the front of this gospel wants us to see the ultimate stuff. He wants us to see the meaning of life that we're made for worship and that we can be restored to know God and be people that were made to be.